Our New Testament scripture passage is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, starting with verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate to you. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then... The end will come. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through the gospel of, of Matthew. And before we turn to this text, let us turn together to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for the proclamation of Christ Jesus that we find within it. And Lord, we do pray that, that all that follows would be faithful to your intention to this text, Lord, and that through the power of your Spirit, you would apply the truth of Christ to our heads, to our hands, and to our hearts. And we ask this in the name of Christ, and we ask this in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, there, there's a lot going on in this passage, as you can probably tell from what Bethany just read. And so I, I want to organize it by looking at it under three headings. It presents us with at least three things. What we find here is the love of God. We find the pains of birth, the, the birth of a new creation. And we find the glory of the Lord. And so let's look at each of those in turn, starting first with the love of God. 
Now remember that, that here we are in the last days of Jesus' life before he's crucified on the cross. Jesus has entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and here he is teaching in the temple. And in fact, the last few sermons that we've had have been looking at the words that Jesus has spoken in the temple. And at the very beginning of, these passage, of this passage, we come to the very last words that Jesus speaks in the temple. These are actually the last words that Jesus will ever speak in the physical building of the temple. He will leave the temple and he will never return. And so it's important to ask ourselves, what are his parting words before he leaves the temple? Well, remember, he tells us that he has sent prophet after prophet to this great city over many, many years But again and again, Jerusalem has killed the prophets and all of those who have been sent to it. And we hear this, and and, and what response do we expect from Jesus? We probably expect rage or fury or, or wrath or all three against the city of Jerusalem. But we actually find something much different. Jesus declares... O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus compares himself here to a mother hen who longs to gather her chicks under the wings of her care and nurture and protection. Jesus seeks to gather the people of this city, to embrace them, to care for them, to protect them, in a sense, to to mother them. Again, these are Jesus' very last words in the temple. And these are fitting words. The temple is the place where God's people are gathered to God. The temple is the key place in all of the earth where humanity is gathered under the wings of God. And yes, people have come to the temple, but they're not really being gathered. They're not really being gathered to God and under God. They might be in the temple of God, but their hearts are, from, are far from God. And God laments this. Christ laments this. So think about it like this. Let's start by asking ourselves a question. What is God's orientation, his posture, his his disposition to humanity right now? Generally speaking, how does God relate to us? Where are we with God? And more importantly, where is God with us? And I think if you ask this question to several people, uh, people that that believe God exists, you'd, you'd probably find primarily two kinds of answers. The first kind of answer would be something like this. God is wholly pleased with us. God loves everything about us. He loves everything we do. We are hard on ourselves, but God is always and only affirming. God already has the relationship that he wants with us. We just have to open our eyes and accept this wonderful truth. But then there might be another kind of response. And this would be the second kind of answer we might receive. It would go something like this. God holds humanity in contempt. He doesn't really desire to be with us. He doesn't really seek reconciliation. 
But if we work hard enough, perhaps we can work our way back up to God. And of course, even if we do, that relationship is still ours to lose. And so we're prone to think of God either as a kind of bland kindness that simply affirms everything about us or a kind of harsh taskmaster that holds us in contempt. We're prone to think that God either loves everything about us or hates everything about us. But this is very much not what we find here. Again, in the temple, in the place of gathering God's people, God in Christ declares, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Yes, we are separated from God. No, everything is not okay. Something is wrong, and in fact, we are the ones that are in the wrong. God seeks to gather us, but we are not willing. We have rejected him, and we are living in alienation from him. We are the ones at fault. However, God does not delight or revel in this separation. God does not sneer at us, sneer at us sort of looking over our shoulder, saying, I told you so. God laments that we are far from him. God grieves this separation. God longs to gather us as his children. God is neither a God of contempt nor a God of bland affirmation. We find here a God who identifies us as sinners, who laments our sins, and who longs to bring us back to himself as his children. And what that means is that we find a God who loves us with a true and real love. We find a God who loves us, his children, as a parent loves their child. When a child is estranged from a parent, love will push the parent neither to act as if everything is okay, nor to turn their back on the child. Love will push the parent to lament and grieve because of the broken relationship. Love will push the parent to identify the brokenness of the relationship and not to paper over it. True love does not say everything is okay when everything is not okay. Apathy might do this. Fear might do this. Anxiety might do this. Insecurity might do this. But love will not do this. Love will not say all is well and pretend that everything is fine when there is brokenness and estrangement. Love identifies the break. Love laments and grieves the break. And love seeks restoration. Love will push the parent to go out and seek the child, to gather the child under the wings of the parent. This can be a complex situation for human parents to navigate. Please hear me say that. For human parents, this can look many different ways in many different situations. But how this looks for God is Jesus Christ. The people are not gathered at the temple, and so God in Christ will go out and he will come to them. And this is the truth that we must get before we go on to the other parts of this passage. And, and, and really, step back and ask yourself, don't you want a God like this? Don't you want a God of real and true love? 
C.S. Lewis, he puts this truth well as he puts so many things well. He writes, if God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. And it appears from all the records that though he has often rebuked us and condemned us, he has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. You asked for a loving God. You have one, the consuming fire himself. God looks upon humanity with real love, love that is neither contempt nor mere kindness. It's a love that laments and grieves the broken relationship between us and him, a love that goes out and seeks and reconciles and restores and redeems. And it is, it's a love, as we'll see later, that will cost Christ everything. And that means that God desires to be with you more than you desire to be with him. And so God is a God who goes out and seeks us and finds us. So please, before we get to everything else, hold on to that. Take deep comfort in that truth. And this truth will bring us and prepare us for the next section, the pains of birth. In the next passage, the next part of the passage, Christ will tell us things that we would probably rather not hear. However, again, these words come from Christ's deep, deep love for us. Again, what motivates his ministry is his longing to go out and gather us as a hen cares for her children. And if we know that he loves us, if we know that he loves us as the all-good, all-powerful, all-wise God, then we are in the place to hear these warnings in the right way. In fact, we're in a place even to hear these warnings as encouragement, encouragement to joyful and patient endurance. And so we find that after expressing his longing for his people, Christ leaves the temple. He speaks about the temple's destruction. We'll talk about that in our third and final point. But after this, the disciples ask him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And a disclaimer, right? We, we need to tread carefully here. American Christianity can have a dangerous penchant for predicting and, and trying to know much more about this end, this consummation of history, than humans can actually know. We have books, we have movies, we have novels that train us to see our, our present situation as charged signs of the end times. However, as one biblical commentator writes, and he's saying this about the very last book of the Bible, one that's often used to argue that the present moment fits exactly within end times prophecy, the commentator notes, quote, When the book of Revelation has been used to encourage people, it has been one of the most valuable books in the Bible. When it has been used to predict events, it has been one of the most dangerous. And this is the spirit with which we need to approach this part of the text today. It's meant to encourage, not to predict. And on that note, notice here that Christ himself does not use the term signs in this passage to describe what the future will bring. The disciples do speak of signs, but Christ here speaks of birth pains. Christ tells us, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. 
All these are but the beginning of birth pains. And this is important language. For one thing, it continues the imagery of motherhood from the previous section. Again, Christ longs to gather his people like a mother hen under her wings. And in the same way, when Christ tells his people of the sufferings to come, he speaks of it in the language of motherhood. These sufferings are birth pains, and they fall under the same parental love as does his longing to gather his people. And like a parent who does not shield their children from all of the suffering of this world in order that the child would mature and grow to be a wise and resilient adult, so too does Christ allow suffering into the lives of his children. And so through all of this, we must keep the love and nurture of Christ in focus as we approach these sufferings to come. And as for the specifics of the sufferings that Christ identifies, we do see something of this in history. The 20th century has been the bloodiest century ever. The century that just ended 23 years ago. Even more at present, we have stockpiles of weapons that could blow up the world many times over, and we stand on the brink of several ecological and environmental crises. The reality of wars and famine have certainly not disappeared with the march of history. And Christ goes on, and he tells us, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And note, it is very much the case that the 20th century was the century of Christian martyrdom. Uh, this is from an article put out by Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. It states, We estimate that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last two millennia, more than half of which died in the 20th century. We also estimate that 1 million Christians were killed between 2001 and 2010, and about 900,000 were killed from 2011 to 2020. So take note. More than half of history's Christian martyrs have been killed in the last 123 years. But again, it's not our place to predict where we are in this historical process. Christ could return tomorrow or he could return thousands of years from now. We are called to be prepared, not to predict. Even more, there is a key theological truth that we have to keep in mind here. Remember, Jesus uses the imagery of birth pains. And there's another important place in Scripture that refers to the sufferings of this present life as birth pains. In Romans 8, Paul tells us, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Jesus and Paul both describe the sufferings of this present life as birth pains. And what this means is that the new creation is being born in the space of the old. And so, yes, this is a hopeful process, superlatively hopeful, supremely hopeful. But it's also a painful process. Paul is telling us that all of creation is groaning, 
Jesus tells us that history will bring wars and famine and persecution. Both tell us that these are the labor pains that come with the birthing of the new creation and the space of the old. Even more, Paul tells us that creation itself is longing for the glory of the children of God. So what does all of this mean? Well, it means that any and all suffering experienced by the Christian is meant to help birth them into what God intends the human to be. God's ultimate plans for humans have not changed since God first created humanity. But now, because of sin becoming what God intends us to be, and and we see this in the resurrected humanity of Christ, but this process of becoming what God intends us to be, because of the fall, is a painful experience. Bearing children is a blessing. But as Genesis 3 tells us, one of the curses of the fall is that bearing children has become a painful experience. In a fallen world, new life comes through pain. The same is true for the birth of the new creation. I was listening to, a, I was listening to an interview last week, and I, and I heard an analogy, and I want to alter and repurpose that analogy and, and apply it to today's passage. So bear with me. Think about a baby in the womb. If you asked a baby in the womb what its eyes were for, it would have no idea. There's no light in the womb. It's total darkness. The baby can't possibly imagine what its eyes are for, let alone what light actually is. But in the womb, the baby is being prepared for a greater, more wonderful world than that of the womb. And each birth pain is fashioning the baby for a fuller, grander life. Soon, soon the baby will see light. It will know light and it will understand and even appreciate the birth pains that developed its eyes and ultimately that delivered the baby to this greater, grander world. The same is true for this life. And so Jesus uses the imagery of birth pains to describe our present existence. The writer Annie Dillard, in her classic book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she describes cruelty, cruelty as the waste of pain. Cruelty as the waste of pain. It's pain for no purpose, pain for no good reason. It's simply pain for the sake of pain. Christ, the God who loves us and longs to gather us, he is never cruel. Yes, pain will come into our lives, but it is never, ever, ever wasted. It's never without Christ's good and wise purposes. The suffering, the pains in this life are slowly delivering you into a world without suffering and death and corruption and envy and jealousy and sorrow. A world in which God is all in all. For the Christian, each suffering between now and Christ's return is forming us into exactly what Christ intends us to be, even if right now we can't fully understand it or appreciate it, just like that baby in the womb. The purpose of the birth pains is to deliver the child into the world that it was actually meant for. Again, the development of the child's eyes would be largely mysterious to the child in the womb. But soon, 
In that world to come, once the birth pains are complete, the child will see quite literally what its eyes are for. The child will finally see the world that he or she was made for. And this is a matter of deep, deep faith for us, especially when the present life causes us to suffer greatly. Jesus here speaks of very difficult things, of wars and of famines and of persecutions. And we can also add to this the many other related sufferings that come with life in a fallen world. Because eventually all of us will face very difficult things, sickness, death, and loss. And so I ask, what are the hard things you are facing right now? Illness, unemployment, rejection, professional failure, unfulfilled hopes and longings that we all carry, parental difficulties with your children, broken relationships that you long to be restored. And I say this with trepidation because scripture compels us to say this. In what ways do these hardships have the potential to form you in a way that nothing else could? How can these situations cause you to know and love and trust God in ways that other circumstances could never offer? How is God birthing you through all of these circumstances? In the midst of such suffering, do we have the faith to believe that God is forming us for the new creation, for the world to come? Do we trust that even now powers of sight are being formed in us that will enable us to see God in his glory with unparalleled clarity in the new creation? And again, I say this with trepidation, but do we really believe that for the Christian, any and all suffering is ultimately a birth pain that is birthing us into the glorified children of God? The very children of God for which all of creation longs to see. No pain in this life is ever wasted for the Christian. And this is true even if we have to wait to the next world for the new creation to fully understand and appreciate all of the developments, all the things that God is doing with us and through us in this present life of suffering. And this also has much to say about our expectations for this life, for the womb that is this present world. Uh, to again quote C.S. Lewis, he helps us here. He says, imagine a set of people all living in the same building. Half of them think it's a hotel, the other half think it's a prison. Those who think it's a hotel might regard it as quite intolerable, and those who thought it was a prison might decide that it was really surprisingly comfortable. As much as our culture might try to convince us otherwise, we are not to imagine our lives as a stay in a luxury hotel. It's impossible. Comfort is not the purpose of our existence, and if it is, we will continually be disappointed in this life. This comfort will always, always escape us. Our bodies decay, our careers end and they're forgotten, our dearest relations pass away, our efforts never fully produce the efforts or the effects that we hope. And here's the thing, here's the thing, your life will end in suffering. All of us will suffer death. 
This will come from some breakdown in our body. It may be sudden or it may be slow. But if suffering has no meaning, if it has no purpose, then the worst is always yet to come. There will be a day when every day here brings more suffering than the day before. And if suffering is only a cruel waste of pain, then this life is a cruel joke with the very cruelest punchline. At the same time, this life is not a prison either. It's much better than that. At another point, Lewis speaks of this life as a stay in a hospital, and and that image expresses well the the process of, of being developed and formed through these birth pains. If you imagine your life as a stay in the hospital, a place of healing, a place of getting better, then you will always, Lewis tells us, be pleasantly surprised. We take medicine because we need it, and we are pleasantly surprised that the medicine actually tastes good. This relationship, this conversation, this job, this meal, this natural scenery, don't expect too much of it. It will not satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. It will never bring you full and complete and invincible comfort. But it was never meant to in the first place. And so simply enjoy it for what it is. And when you don't expect so much from it, when you don't expect it to bear the weight of your soul, you'll actually come to enjoy it much, much more. I mean, think about it. Who would have expected so many good gifts in this dark womb of a world that lacks the light of the new creation? And yet look around at all of the good gifts that God has given to us. But Christ gives us another warning. He says, amidst the sufferings that will come before his return, he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so let's really think about what does he mean by the end? The Greek word here for end is the Greek word telos. And as one Greek dictionary says of telos, it is the consummating conclusion of a dynamic process. And so when we speak of the present age, we also speak of the telos, the consummation, the culmination of the present age. The birthing process, it it speaks of a maturation and development. And, And that's how the telos of history is here described by Christ. History is going somewhere. The old creation is giving way to the new creation. And one day in the future, everything will suddenly change. One day Christ will return and everything will be different. Just just like when the baby goes from the womb into this world, and in a flash, everything is wholly new. But at the same time, this new world is the consummation. It's the culmination of every birth pain and development of the previous nine months. All this time in the old world of the womb, the baby was being prepared for the new world. And now it can understand and appreciate the birth pains. Now it can understand and truly appreciate the love of its mother. The newborn child is the telos of the womb, the new creation and the children of God, the glorified children of God, are the telos of history. 
And this brings us to our third and our final point, the glory of the Lord. Remember that Christ tells us that like a mother hen, he longs to gather us under his wings. After saying these words, we see Christ leave the temple. He tells of its coming destruction. And then he goes east out of the city to the Mount of Olives. But as commentators point out, this is not the first time that the Lord has done just this. In Ezekiel 11, we see the glory of the Lord leave Jerusalem, leave the temple. The prophet tells us, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Here, during the days of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple and goes out east of the city to a mountain, very likely to the Mount of Olives to the very place where Christ now speaks privately with his disciples. In both cases, the temple remains, but the Lord is not there. God no longer resides in the temple. Christ has left the temple and he will not return. And Christ here makes it clear that the temple will be destroyed. This will happen a few decades later in the year 70 A.D., And this shows us that the temple no longer plays the role that it once did in the lives of God's people. Or better put, the temple in the center of Jerusalem has given way to the true and the better temple. Because Christ, the true temple, has come. In John 2, Christ describes his very body as the temple of God. And this, this is audacious. Christ has the audacity to call himself the temple. Christ has the audacity to identify himself with the very epicenter, the very nexus, the very locus of where and how God is worshipped. And think about the ministry that's regularly enacted at the temple. It's the promise that the sacrificial animal can bear the judgment that we deserve for failing to love God and neighbor. It's the promise that the substitute will bear the punishment of that most perfect justice. Think about that ministry. The ministry of the temple, it only makes sense if there is a break in our relationship with God and if if God longs to restore that relationship. The animals must bear our sin so that we can fellowship with a good and holy God. And note, it is God who institutes the temple He does this because he longs to be with his people. He longs to restore the relationship with them. He's not a God of contempt, nor is he a God of mere kindness. He's a God of true sacrificial love. God institutes the temple to gather his people to himself. However, the logic of the temple is God's people coming to God. This is not the logic of Christ. Christ, the true temple, is God seeking and finding his estranged children. Christ is the temple that goes out and finds. This is why Christ departs the temple. He leaves to seek and to find. In the book of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple in order to find the exiles. The glory of the Lord leaves the temple to gather and restore his people. And the very same thing is true for us in Christ. But as Christ warns us, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. 
The title Christ refers to the one who will come and will fulfill the promises of God. And in this passage, in the context of this passage, we see the promise of the temple. What is the fulfilled promise here? It is Christ Jesus becoming both our great high priest and our sacrificial offering. The true Christ that we alone must seek is the true temple. God in Christ restores his broken relationship with his children by taking upon himself the death of the cross to pay the penalty for all the ways that we have refused to be gathered under his wings. This is the God who longs to be with us, to gather us, to be with us. This is a love that cost Christ dearly. Only a God who truly longs and loves us, only a God who laments over our broken relationship would suffer the cross. Think about it. If the cross is unnecessary, if God simply stands back and loves you with a bland affirmation, you have a God whose love for you costs you nothing. But if we really are estranged from God, then the cross is the greatest act of love that the world has ever known. The God of the universe, the God who creates and sustains all things, stoops down and bears all of the brokenness of our relationship with him so that we can be restored to him. And as Ezekiel tells us, what leaves the temple building and finds the exiles and finds us is the glory of the Lord. And so do you want to see the glory of the Lord? Look to Christ. Look to the God who is not only all-powerful and wise and good, but the God who is also loving and humble, who seeks us out to gather us at the greatest cost to himself. This is the glory of the Lord. Christ in his ministry is the very picture of the glory that we will worship forever in the new creation that he is birthing. And this tells us something else. Remember that we will also be revealed in the new creation. What will be revealed is the glory of the children of God. Right? This, is, this is the effect of those birth pains. And if we accept the message of Christ and receive him by faith as the true temple, then we receive the new birth. We are made new and we begin the birth pains that grow us into the new creation. But the glory of the Lord manifests itself in the suffering of the cross. And the glory of the children of God will, as Jesus tells us, be developed through suffering, through the pains of birth. But here's the thing. If the cross, the very height of suffering, is the ultimate act of God's triumph, then we can be sure that God can work his powerful purposes in any instance of suffering that he brings into our life. The paradigm becomes, for the Christian, glory through suffering. The cross looked like the defeat of Christ, but actually it was his victory. And so we ask, what, what suffering in our life seems like a defeat, but is actually the very means of Christ's victory in us? Again, all of the suffering of the Christian, all of it, in some way, shape, or form, are the birth pains, the means of our growth and maturation into what God intends us to be. And we thought that Christ in the tomb was his defeat. 
but we find that this carved rock was only the womb of his resurrected humanity. And the very same thing is true for us. And lastly, we can proclaim the gospel boldly because Christ, the true temple, is with us. And this is an important truth to remember on Pentecost Sunday as we remember the public proclamation of Christ that began to establish the global church. Even more, Christ tells us that the proclamation of the gospel, more than anything else, ushers in the new creation. The book of Matthew in chapter 28 It ends with Christ exhorting his disciples to go into all the world, making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And after giving us this charge, Christ tells us, Behold, I am with you, with you, always to the end of the age. This is how Matthew closes his book. Again, Christ has left the temple building. But he has done so to find us, to be with us, to gather us. And so throughout all of the sufferings of this world that form us for the glory of the new creation, as we declare the gospel of Christ in both word and deed, we remember that, in a sense, we never actually leave the temple. Christ, the true temple, is with us, never letting us go as he keeps us under his wings until the very end of the age and the full birth of the new creation. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the promise of Christ. We thank you for the promise of new creation. Lord, help us to hold fast to your love for us. We know that that motivates all that you do for us. Lord, it's a scary prayer, but what else can we pray? Lord, form us into what you would have us to be. Lord, form us into the glorified children of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.